Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, to live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Former world backpacker turned bartender Jeff Kirshner is a serial entrepreneur with a love for storytelling. When his four-year-old daughter saw a plastic tub of cat litter in the woods, little did he realize that it would be the spark for creating Literati a data science company empowering people to create a litter-free world. Featured in National Geographic, Rolling Stone, and Time Magazine, Literati is backed by the National Science Foundation and is in partnership with the United Nations and has been featured at TED. Kirshner has shared the Literati story at Fortune 500 companies such as Google, Facebook, and Uber, keynoted environmental summits at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and Keep America Beautiful, as well as leading schools, including Stanford, MIT, and the University of Michigan. He was recently a TED resident, where he developed literati into an idea worth spreading. He discussed this more in his TED Talk. Jess is also an esteemed member of the executive coaching legend, Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. And when people talk about coaching, I ask them about two coaches. Do they know who Marshall Goldsmith is? And do they know who Jerry Colonna is? If they don't know who either one of those men are, then I know that they're either new or they're not really serious as coaches. To learn more about Jeff and his mission, follow him on Twitter and Instagram and check out literati.org. Jeff, I put a long string on that kite. Uh, I just want to give you your your full accolades and let people know what a tremendous entrepreneur you are and what an amazing man you are. So thank you for being here today, my friend. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Marcus. Thank you for having me. We've known each other for, is it two years? Yeah, that's about right. Two years. You heard me on, on Jerry Colonna's podcast, as a matter of fact. I did. I was inspired by your story, your message, and I reached out to you and said much the same. And you were kind enough to uh, respond. And that was the beginning. It was the beginning. And it seemed that that mutual, that intersection of adversity is what really kind of got your attention to reach out to me. And you and I have talked about this notion that there's enough rose clever glasses and there's enough people that are trying to give a lot of superfluous bullshit when it comes to the hard facts about trying to make change in the world, trying to create a business, trying to make a real difference. And you said that there's enough of that in the world already. We need to do something that's going to actually change people's minds and understanding that adversity is very real, that it doesn't go away. And that no matter how successful the business is, it's always there. Like you said, that's what really kind of got your attention. And and you can very much speak to that in, in many ways in your life, right? I can. And it is what got my attention. And look, there's a lot of terrible things happening in the world. And we do need to hear the good stories. And we do need optimism. And, and that's really important. And I think we need to hear the challenges that people go through, because that's where we can learn. And what struck me about you and your story and the TED Talk that you had given was you dealt with adversity head on in a way that very few people could understand. And you came out of that with a message of hope and of optimism and a focus and how you can take 
adversity and really use that less as a foe and more as a friend. And that's really what, you know, was the basis for, I think, the beginning of our relationship and frankly, what we constantly talk about. I absolutely agree. It's, it's very easy for us to lose sight of adversity once we're out of it. But the thing is, if we lose sight of it, that means we also lose the lesson. We also lose the opportunity to get stronger. And frankly, when it pokes holes in our, in our business plan or, or any of our plans, it's imperative for us to go through and really try to dam those things up so that they don't continue to happen. So many times in businesses, we see where there's this big gap either in the business model or in a process, and the businesses continue to fall into it over and over again, whether it be a cash flow problem or you know trying to get people hired appropriately in the right amount of time, whatever it is, there's always this gap. And if you just allow that to continue, what's everybody want to do? They want to scale their business, but what are they scaling? The adversity, the inefficiency, the problems, and they can literally scale themselves out of business if they're not careful. Yeah. And I've certainly made that mistake more than once. You know, There's that great quote from Mike Tyson that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And there's a lot of truth to that. What's so important for me personally is knowing that, yeah, you're going to get smacked, but it's how you come back from that and what lesson do you learn from that? And then how do you move forward, hopefully a little bit wiser, hopefully a little bit stronger, hopefully with a little bit more courage so that ultimately you keep finding your way. That's everything. It's a story that never changes. And it's a lesson that always has to be learned. Sometimes we think we learn it and then we lose sight of it for a moment. And then we get reminded sometimes with, like you said, that slap in the face. The problem is as we become more successful, the stakes get higher. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we don't understand how imperative one single decision can be or hesitation can be, as a matter of fact. And so at the level of entrepreneurship that you're at with the experience that you have as a serial entrepreneur, you can very much, you've experienced that, but you've overcome a tremendous amount of adversity in the process as well. You know, I have, and, and it's all relative, right? The adversity to me is very different than what others go through. One of the things that has been fascinating for me to watch and, and learn from is that it's never as bad as you make it out to be in your at least that's been my experience. And I have the, I guess, the terrible genetic disposition disposition to always think that the, the big bad monster is as big and as bad and as I make it out to be. And so avoidance can oftentimes set in because I don't want to deal with that adversity head on. What I have found time and time again is it's never quite as bad as I made it out to be. And more importantly, that once you face it head on, once you tackle it, whatever it is, there's magic on the other side. There's discovery on the other side. There's relief on the other side. I think that for me has been my relationship with adversity and one that I continue to grow with on a daily basis. Adversity doesn't guard anything that's not worth having. And the the path less traveled is where all the treasure is, so to speak. So you and I have said, we've talked about this many times, but the the answer that we seek is found in the adversity that we're currently avoiding. And that's just as true in business as it is in a relationship, as it is in a conversation, as it is with our finances. So that's so powerful. We also discussed how sometimes the hardest part is continuing to move forward, even whenever we know that we're going towards adversity, but sometimes we're asking ourselves, is this in vain? Is there a reason I should stop at this point? How do we figure out when it's important to keep going or how do we know when maybe we should pivot or how do we know even if what we've done in the, in the past is enough sometimes? Yeah, that for me is one of the most difficult questions to answer. And, and like you've articulated, when you're headed towards this moment in time or towards this thing that feels like failure or feels like impending doom? How do you A, recognize that? What do you do to B, either stop or shift and see how do you keep a sense of clarity around that? 
not easy. Uh, what I have done is oftentimes relied on others, right? Right? Re- relied on those who have been there before me. That maybe they can provide some guidance as to what are the pitfalls to look out for, what are the obstacles to expect, and use that almost as a, a playbook to to help me on that journey. Go with my gut often, and then just learn as quickly as I can. So as you take one more step and one more step, what are the new discoveries that you make and how do you apply those new learnings with that intuition that you have, with the guidance from trusted friends and family members and colleagues? And and at the end of the day, trust that you're on a path that will get you to where you want to go. How important is that in leadership? I think it's critical. It's everything. And I think so much of leadership is becoming comfortable with the discomfort living with a constant sense of uncertainty, right? It's, it's not about the talk about courage, not necessarily being the absence of fear, but moving forward despite, which is really hard to do. As much as I want to puff my chest and put on a strong face and always talk about and talk in a way that I know what I'm talking about, you know, so often behind the scenes, that's just not the case. And so I think it's critical. I don't think that trying to Will it alone for me and the style of leader that I try to be it, it is a good recipe. I think I do need the help of others. I do need to be vulnerable. I do need to be comfortable with the discomfort and just try to put one foot in front of the other. And as a leader, that's everything because the people that are around you, they don't need platitudes. They don't need a bunch of pie in the sky kind of stuff. They want, they need to know, listen, this is where we're at. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. And I have found you, we've talked about this before, having some transparency breeds that integrity, breeds that trust. And then when you tell them, listen, here's, here's the transparency. This is what I need from you. And this is why I need it. I'm not just saying it because I have this artificial deadline in my mind. I'm saying it because literally this is where we're at. This is where we need to go. This is the adversity that we're up against, right? And I have found that when you do that, especially when you have the right people, you have a great team and you have great instincts as a leader as well. But when you have those people around, it's amazing what they can accomplish when the stakes are high enough and when there's little other choice. You're absolutely right. Let me give you sort of one of the complicating sides of that that I, that I see is what do you do when you absolute trust in your team and everybody's rowing in the same direction and everyone's aligned? That's great. But what do you do in that scenario where there are things that if your team were aware of, they would maybe become distracted or there were elements that might frighten them? Do you choose to shield them from those items? Do you choose to be fully transparent and share those items with your team? That is a constant juggle and balancing act for me as a leader, because I don't think that there's necessarily one right answer or wrong answer. I think it's on a case-by-case basis, but I'll tell you, I struggle with that one. What do I share with the team? What do I shield them from? Um, and I would imagine I'm not alone in that, in that constant struggle. I think that if you're not struggling with that in some way, then you're not pushing yourself or your team or your vision's not big enough to force you to elevate to that level. You're absolutely correct. That's why leadership is so difficult because what works for the team today may not work for that same team in an hour, or it may only work for half of the team in an hour. So the thing that may have motivated them half an hour ago may now all of a sudden give them this impending feeling of doom. And now it becomes, it's just manifest destiny in their mind. Well, it's only a matter of time before we get to here. I'm just going to go ahead and they take their foot off the accelerator subconsciously already. That's right. And I like how you said, maybe it's only good for half the team, right? So there are some people whose personality 
they're okay dealing with a you know significant level of risk. Others may not feel that uh, sense of comfort around risk. And you have to, I think, be intentional with each and every person on your team to the to the sense that to the to the extent that you can, right? Depending on the size of your team, but understanding what the different dynamics of personalities are and how the team as a whole will react, but also how the individuals will react is, is really an important part of, of the the role that I sit in. Another, you know, real difficult thing for me as a leader is what do you do when you have a situation where your gut tells you one thing and the team tells you something else. And these are people that you trust through and through. That's why you put them there in the first place, right? And when those two things are at odds, your gut and what your team is telling you, that's another example of a, a very interesting place that leadership will often, often bring you to. That's part of the burden of leadership, yeah. I think it's part of the responsibility for sure. But I think that's what's making you evolve so quickly in everything that you're doing. The reason why you've had the success you have now and the success that you're going to have in the future because you're willing to seek out adversity as much as you possibly can. And again, in business, it's seeking us out anyway. But as you said, if we had this desire to go towards it, we at least get in front of it. We're not caught sideways from it. In the boxing analogy, the one that knocks us out is the one that we don't see coming. So by being aware of it, and like you said, by talking to your team, truly decentralizing commands so that now you have you know eight sets of eyes as opposed to just your own now you have all these people that can see the blind spots that can tell you about what's going on, show you where maybe there's a gap. And as you say, as the leader, what you say goes, but at the same time, still being able to reflect on that. And, and sometimes, again, with that communication, we talk about the five love languages. It's the same way with our people, right? It's the same with our team or people that are far off on the team, 200 people away, where we have to understand how they like to express whatever this is, but also how they like to have it expressed to them. So sometimes the way that we express as a leader may not necessarily be the way they enjoy receiving and vice versa. So as a leader, like you said, read the room, read that individual, but also understand how the individual is going to interact with everyone else there, especially in the heat of the adversity, right? Exactly. And you know, you talked about you can scale the inefficiencies in your business. I think that when you're small, getting that right is critical because if you build in the wrong habits, once you do begin to grow, they only be, those 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 cracks in your system only become accentuated. You know, you also talked about that decentralized organizational structure. If you do that right, then you as the leader don't end up as the bottleneck. For me, that's a big red flag. The moment that I'm the bottleneck in the system, something's wrong, and I got to go back and fix it. And the more you can properly delegate with the people on your team who you trust, I think the better. How important is empathy and compassion as a leader, especially in business? I think that's also really critical. Being empathetic and having sort of that 360 degree view into your team helps you, I think, make better and more informed decisions. So if I can truly understand what someone on my team is feeling, not in a sympathetic way, but in an empathetic way, if I can truly understand that, which is not easy, and it's different for all sorts of for the different people in my organization, it can at least help me understand their position and what's exciting them, what's motivating them, what is demotivating them, what is scaring them. And that at least can help me help them. From a compassion perspective, that is also a key ingredient for leadership, especially you know during times like these when we're going through everything from pandemics to horrific tragedies. You need to be able to show compassion for the individual members of your team. And at the same time, 
ensure that you're keeping the ship going forward, right? That's another crazy balancing act. You know, you have someone on your team who needs to be home with their kids and they're going to miss the next two days of work. You have somebody that wants to take a, you know, extended month-long sabbatical. You have somebody that just needs an hour to not talk to anybody. How do you have compassion for all of those situations that you may or may not agree with, but it's important to them um, how you deal with that and also ensure that the organization continues forward is, is another great you know, piece of the leadership puzzle. And these are all things that we have to, we have to create that leadership capital well ahead of time. We have to dig the well long before we're thirsty because if we're waiting until now we need to, again, using the pragmatic empathy is, is key to understand what's motivating this person or what their fear is or what their expectation is but then actually using the compassion to, to take action to help them. As you say, it's just as difficult sometimes because now there has to be that place where we understand what is the most appropriate decision here. How is this person going to react if I'm trying to help them in a compassionate way? Maybe they don't need help. Maybe they're not at a place where they think that they need help. Maybe that empathy to them feels like, oh, they, they're just trying to give me charity, so to speak. So again, as a leader, you understanding that person, how they're reacting, how the dynamic is, What's going on at home, like you said, whether it be a divorce or whether it be a person who's been in a car wreck, there's so many of these nuances. And that's why it's so difficult, whether it be a smaller company or a huge company, to be very honest about what's going on. And that's what keeps us in those positions of trying to figure out. And again, that's some of the adversity that we see every day. Indeed. And it's interesting. You know, one of the lessons I've learned from my wife is instead of coming into a situation and saying, I can help come into that same situation and ask, how can I help? Because often the ways that you as a leader feel that you can provide assistance to a situation is not at all what the individual or the situation needs. You come in with a set of preconceived notions and a set of skills and areas of comfort that you know, like, oh, I can come in and, you know, I'm making air quotes, save the day. But when you talk to the person on the other end, they're like, I don't need you to save the day. What I really need you to do is just this one thing, and that will save my day. And you know, I think sometimes we as leaders erroneously believe that we can just swoop in and, and magically do something that's needed when in truth, we're better off asking, how can we be of service? Yeah, or if we can be of service, would I be a better service to get the hell out of your way, right? Like you said, because there's a lot of CEOs that want to provide value and they step in two weeks behind without context of what the hell is going on. And now it's like, oh, have you tried this? And the team's like... We did that 45 hours ago. We're here now. And now if you're trying to catch the CEO up, what's happened? We've slowed him down. And at this point, now we're not going any further. And now the CEO is, like you said, being bottlenecked into this thing that maybe at the end of the day, again, he couldn't have set up in the first place. And that's why the people are still kind of working on it. That's absolutely right. And, and not only do you become the bottleneck in that scenario, but if you come in, oftentimes, if you're in a leadership role, people are going to pay attention to what you say. And if your personality is one where you tend to uh, speak loud or have a big persona, it almost can, not almost, it absolutely can influence a decision is made, whether or not you're in a place of competence or not. So many times, just because somebody is the loudest in the room, that's what ends up influencing the decision. So I think building a culture where there's uh, an, an opportunity for everyone to feel safe and secure about bringing ideas to the table. It's not the loudest voice wins. It's not that the person who's in the highest level of seniority makes the end, you know, makes the, the the winning decision. It's the best idea wins. I say that knowing that there's a hierarchy for a reason, and that there are some people that 
at the end of the day, have to make a call. But being part of a leader is giving that space for others in your team to be leaders themselves. Jerry Clonus says it beautifully where he says the job of the CEO, first of all, we have to take the position. We have to step into that place, right? So many times if we create a business, it's a small business and we basically just need people to help us initially with a team. And then as we continue to get bigger, we never put ourselves in that place of I'm the CEO, I'm the leader, I'm the visionary. And now everybody's still looking towards you, whether you realize it or not. But when you're in that place and now you've built this team, our job is to create the right team in the first place and then give them that bandwidth, like you said, to to fall down, to explore, to mess up almost like a child growing up so that they will eventually learn, hey, that stove is hot. Hey, maybe we shouldn't run over here. Hey, maybe I should not put so much food on my plate and let my eyes get bigger than my stomach. These are the lessons that they can learn no other way, but you have to have the passion, the patience, the bandwidth, and frankly, the bankroll to allow them to become a great team in the process. And that takes a lot of effort sometimes. Especially when you haven't done it before and don't have the experience to fall back on. Right. So for me, this, uh, you know, my current role is as a first time CEO. And while I've co founded several other organizations, I've never been at the helm. And I say that to say that there's so much I don't know. And I'm constantly faced with situations where I'm not sure what the right decision is. I'm not sure what the right move forward is. And the only way you learn is by going, you know, I'm often saying the only way out is through. And whether it's dealing with, an employee situation, a customer situation, a product situation, a tax and liability situation. When you're a first-time CEO, the reality is that most of these things, you don't know what you're doing until you do them once. And then all of a sudden, you go through that adversity and now you've been there. Now you have that experience and, and some level of wisdom that you didn't have before. And that's, uh, I think there's a really fun element to that learning process as well. And Sometimes it's important to remember that as we're, as we're going through this. Yeah, if we can maintain curiosity as well as courage when we're in those places, it's a tremendous learning opportunity. And for better or for worse, pain and discomfort are the best teachers if we see it as such, if we can reframe that as the opportunity. And then, like you said, it's our job to try to share that with our team. Now we've force multiplied. Now they all know that lesson as well, hopefully. And then maybe we don't get caught by the same thing, at least not in the same way again in the future. But so with the co-founder, like you say, it's it's a blessing and a curse. The nice thing is you have somebody to, to kind of shoulder the burden, but then sometimes as we grow, co-founders either grow apart or one becomes more of the visionary, one becomes more of the implementer. And now there's this maybe separation or there's this, now we don't see eye to eye on some of these things. And the ones that you've worked in before, has that ever happened to you guys? Sure. So I've been fortunate enough to work in a situation where my first two companies, I started with other people. And in both of those situations, they were fantastic to work with. And in the first company, I did, after five years, have a situation where I got laid off from the very company I started. And that's a, an interesting pride pill to swallow. And to have the one person who you started the company with try to explain to you that actually, this is the right move for the company to let you go is a really bizarre conversation to have. So I've been in that position as well. With my current company, it's been an interesting situation because while I started it by myself and spent several years sort of in that solo founder role, there was an individual who came to me a couple of years in and said, look, I love what you're doing. I think I can be really helpful. And 
he gave and has continued to give everything he's got. And he earned that co-founder title. And so I was happy to say, look, I get it. Optics-wise, yeah, I started this alone, but I want you shoulder to shoulder with me because you have proven just by the amount of energy and sacrifice that you have provided that you have earned the right to be called a co-founder. And if that's something you want, please take it. So I've had a variety of experiences with the the co-founder dynamic and um, it's always interesting going through. And it's very much a relationship. It's very much like a marriage. I mean, it's, it's business. So knowing that person, knowing their, the particular personality that they have, the way that they respond in the, in the heat of adversity, those are all very telling. And it sounds like you've got a, a good co-founder with you now to help you drive towards this next level of, of growth that you guys are on. I, I very much do. And I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, and you know, we do check-ins to make sure that we are fully aligned. Are we aligned on our calling? Are we aligned on our clients? Are we aligned on our community? Are we aligned on our level of courage? Are we aligned on compensation? We actually have this framework we call the six C's. Um, and, and he introduced a thought to me called the say-do ratio, which is, did you do what you said you were going to do? And when it comes to accountability and building trust, that say-do ratio is critical. And specifically about trust, I don't think there's a more important thing. To me, that is the principal value because if you don't have that, it's really tough to build a sustainable organization. Yeah. And for those of you that are listening to this and saying, well, this is business, it's the same thing in a friendship. Would you trust, would you be friends with somebody that you couldn't trust or somebody that was inconsistent or somebody that was not backing up their, their words with deeds? Probably not. They wouldn't be in your circle. They may be an acquaintance. But then when you're in the trenches, when you're in the positions with business, Absolutely. That's what you have to have. If you can know deep down in the military, we would train and they would give us, you know, impossible like scenario missions. And they would do that specifically just to see what the people would do when it became obvious that there's no way we could succeed. Are they still going to give everything they have to the last second, even though we're way off from the mark? Or are they going to just give up and they're going to just start to fall back? And oftentimes just that additional push, just that little crack, like you were saying before, into this idea of what the potential is, that's enough. I mean, you just continue to pound that stone. It's not the first strike that does it. It may be the hundredth and we never even see the beginning of it, but we continue to endeavor towards that. We continue to move forward with it. The whole 60-20-20 ratio, right? 60% of the time what we're doing feels mundane, repetitive, nothing's changing. 20% of the time it feels horrible. Like we're not making any, we're backsliding. But that 20% of the time when it actually does come together and when everything aligns and when everything is really flowing, that's where we need to be. And that's where that momentum will carry you. And that's the beauty of what you're talking about. If we can lead in a way that's congruent with the way that we believe in all the ethos of our company, that team will help sustain us, even if we're the ones that are on that lower 20%, even as the CEO or the co-founder may not feel great or maybe like, shit, I can't believe we just took another hit. The, the team keeps going. The team is what carries you through. And so that's where your leadership literally comes back and saves you in the process simply because you were leading. You, you were actually speaking. You were actually doing the deeds, not just talking the words in the process. Well, what, you know, what comes up for me as you're saying that is what happens when the trust breaks? And I've been in that situation. And I'll tell you the quick story because to me, that's what's really defining about a team and about the character of the individuals. So. We had, this was several years ago, we were preparing for 
a pretty major product release. It was the biggest thing we'd ever done on a product and technology side. And we had spent months not only preparing ourselves for it, but preparing our community members and preparing our customers and everybody that knew about it was expecting something. And they were relying on it for their customers and for their community members. The day of the release came and we failed miserably. And not only did we fail miserably, we completely imploded in terms of what we were supposed to deliver. And what had taken me seven years to build disintegrated in seconds and trust evaporated. That's a moment where there's a lot of adversity, where people are furious, they're disappointed, they are questioning, why did we ever you know, partner with you to begin with? Your team is chaotic. I mean, all of the moment when trust breaks are in your face all at once. And one voice is louder than the next of people screaming at you. How you come out of that is interesting. The way we chose to come out of it was to first just slow down because we had been going a mile a minute and we weren't going to make any mindful, clear choices while we were flying. So we slowed down and we sort of took stock of the situation and we just shut up and we started listening to what the people who were so upset were saying. And then we apologized and we did it with as much authenticity and vulnerability as we possibly could. And we accepted with full accountability, everything that had gone wrong. And while we didn't know how we were going to get out of it at the time, we made a commitment, which was, we're going to figure out how to get out of this and how to build back your trust one day at a time. And I'll tell you, Marcus, that's what we've been doing for the last three years. And while I feel like we've regained it pretty well, we still got a ways to go. And my attitude is you never stop earning that trust. Every day you you have to earn it. And that's so important, especially as the leader. There was a company that I was coaching and there was a loss of trust. And the CEO had lost trust. He hadn't performed the way they were supposed to. It was this clearly double standard type scenario. And all of the team, all the senior management team was fine. They were like, that's fine. We will give you another shot. It happened two or three more times. Finally, when I talked to him, he said, basically, I don't feel worthy of their trust anymore. And I think that I'm sabotaging myself. And eventually it was time for him to leave. But it just shows that it takes two to tango. It takes the person that's willing to give the trust again, sight unseen. But it also takes that person that's willing to say, I'm willing to try to be worthy of your trust. I'm willing to take the responsibility and gravity of this trust and weight of it. And I'm going to do what I said that I was going to do in the first place. So that's tremendous on your part to, to be able to take that kind of public slap in the face, take a breath and say, yeah, you're not wrong. Now, what are we going to do? What are we going to do moving forward? It's not easy. And, you know, it's also interesting when you take a public slap in the face for maybe something that you shouldn't take that slap for, right? When you didn't necessarily mess up, but the optics are that you did, or maybe someone's just lashing out and you happen to be there as sort of the punching bag. That's another interesting part of being in the leadership role. And I've been in that position too. And what I've learned through, I guess, some coaching and some experiences, it's okay to be resolute. You don't have to be a punching bag. You don't have to roll over. You can be resolute and still take you know, somebody's you know, full ire and stand up for yourself without attacking back. That's another really interesting part of facing adversity when you know in your heart that I don't fucking deserve this, but I'm going to take it anyway. And I'm going to make sure 
that I stand tall and let that person know or that organization know that this is exactly who I am and who we are. I understand you're upset and I'm sorry for that, but you're not going to continue to smack us around. You can, you can lie down like a doormat for people and some of them will still say you're not flat enough. So you eventually have to stand up for what you believe in, right? You said that a hell of a lot better than I did. <laughs> so tell us about what was the, the beginning of Literati. What got you here? They may not have seen your TED Talk yet, but it's a tremendous story. And I know you're a great storyteller. So. I was working on a screenplay. I'm a writer by trade. I got really frustrated one afternoon staring at the, the white page. And took my kids on a hike in the woods. My daughter was four. My son was two. And we were living in Oakland, California at the time. And my daughter noticed this plastic tub of cat litter lying in a creek behind our house. And with this really innocent expression, she just looked at me and said, Daddy, that doesn't go there. And I will tell you, Marcus, it is amazing how your kids can get you to see the world in a way that you hadn't. So she makes this comment. And uh, it was an eye-opening moment for me. Because here I am living in California, a place known for being environmentally progressive. and yet suddenly all I could see was trash. And I mean, everywhere. And so when she said that, it reminded me of when I was a kid, I used to go to summer camp. And on the morning of visiting day, the camp director would say, quick, everybody go pick up five pieces of trash. So you'd get a couple hundred kids, we're each picking up five pieces. And within a few minutes, the camp was spotless. And I thought, well, why not apply that crowdsourced model, not just to a camp, but to the entire planet? And that was the inspiration for starting Literati. What happened next, frankly, was a little bit strange. I photographed a cigarette butt using Instagram. There was no rhyme or reason. There was not an idea for a company. I just took this photo. And then I took another photo of a bottle cap and another one of a beer bottle and another one of a coffee cup. I was basically just taking these photos of litter and trash all around. And I noticed two things happening to me. The first was litter became artistic, right? The power of Instagram. And therefore approachable. Right, The bottle cap that I may have walked over suddenly became a really cool photo op. And the second thing I noticed happening was that at the end of a week, I had 50 photos on my phone. And I realized that the same way people measure the steps they walk or the miles they ride, I'm measuring the positive impact I'm having on the planet. Didn't know what I could do with that, but I thought it was cool. And so I started sharing that with other people. And what began as a simple photograph on Instagram has now turned into a data and AI-based company with a community in 185 countries, the largest data set of waste and trash and litter leaking out of the system in the world, and a pretty cool group of people, or as we like to say, this ragtag bunch of bandits who are here to leave this world a little bit better than we found it. And uh, that's the journey we've been on. And then you built the app from there, and it just it's just been taken off ever since then. You know, I think define what you mean by taking it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a long, hard slog. Uh, and it always will be, I think. You know, what we realized was it's, there was never like this major epiphany. There was not like this single aha moment, you know. It has been a continuous peeling back of the onion and discovery and heading down this dark alley and saying, no, that's not going to lead anywhere. And, oh, wait, there's a door over here. Let's go through that. Nope, 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 go over here. But we've just continued to do that. And what began literally as Instagram, as our sort of product, where people were photographing these images of litter and adding this hashtag literati, what we learned from that was, wow, this is no longer just a bunch of pretty pictures. It's actually becoming a community, albeit on someone else's platform, Instagram. But what if we could take that community and build our own thing from it 
And that's exactly what led to the building of the mobile applications. And then once we did that, it was, wow, all these photographs have all this data. Like every single photo can tell you who is picking up what, where, and when, because there's a timestamp and a geotag. And we've now built these computer vision models that look at a photograph and can identify what are all the objects, what are all the materials, what are all the brands. So that's a Pepsi aluminum can. That's a Marlboro cigarette butt. That's a Starbucks plastic straw. And when you start to collect that volume of data at scale across the planet, some really interesting things can start to happen. And so that's how we've evolved. And I I continue to be amazed at not only how far we've come, but more inspired about how far we have to go. And for everybody that's listening, those of you may say, well, I'm not littering, but Jeff and I were talking, I, I just recently got back from Arizona, had a great week away with my wife and I was in some beautiful places. And even in these beautiful places that are so far and so remote, there was still a plastic water bottle. There was still this, there was still that. So if you enjoy the outdoors, if you enjoy hiking, if you enjoy hunting, if you consider yourself to be any sort of an outdoor person, this is absolutely something you could easily do, easily get behind. And again, how hard is it to bend over and pick something up? You say that you're outside trying to get exercise. You're already out there, burn an extra couple of calories, pick this thing up, use the app. It's not hard at all. It's as easy. I mean, like you're saying, people live with this thing, this cell phone in their hand all the time now. They want to take a picture of them doing stuff all the time now. That you could actually do something with this and truly make a difference as opposed to feeling just good on Instagram or whatever the social media platform is that you enjoy. Get on the app and do this and truly make a difference. Well, let me give you the unpopular opinion, right? The unpopular opinion is why would I take a photograph of a piece of trash when I could just pick it up? And I can understand that argument. Here's why I think you picking up the Starbucks cup or you picking up the cigarette butt is actually less effective than taking the photograph. We've been cleaning up the planet for decades. Our failure has not been from a lack of trying. There are countless public service announcements from Give a Hoot, Don't Pollute to a famous crying Native American commercial from uh, Keep America Beautiful. There are street signs threatening $1,000 littering fines, and there are weekly neighborhood cleanups and beach walks. And the problem's not getting any better. We believe that the way to solve it is to understand it. We believe the way to solve it is to truly get data so that you can understand what is leaking out of the system, where is it leaking to, and when is it found? What are the top brands? What are the top materials? What are the ways that we need to truly use that data to make much more informed decisions? And so, you know, literati is not for everybody, and that's just fine. But what we are is for those people that see the value of information and data being used to make smarter decisions. And what we are is a place where anybody can come and be part of something for a greater good. And and one of the things that's been really interesting for me through this journey is, you know, so many of today's environmental problems feel so overwhelming. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. There's, There's too much. It's too big. It's too problematic. And that feeling is one of isolation, it's one of desperation, and it's one of hopelessness. And what Literati has started to do, only started, is provide a sense of community and transform that feeling of isolation into one of inspiration. And that feeling of, I'm alone on this, and and saying, no, you're not. There are other people who are doing the same simple act that you are, and it's leading to an actionable result. And suddenly you get a sense that, you know what? we can make a difference. I like to say that individually you make a difference, but together we create an impact. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with Literati. And that's the key. In in business, we say that what's measured is is what's managed. 
But when you're showing us this with this data, it's very measurable and you can see trends, you can see patterns, you can, you can anticipate the future based on what you've already gathered. And that's something that, uh, again, when you look at some of the stuff that's going on in the environment, there's different size, different data that you can look at that can be confusing, can lead to consternation. It can lead to hesitation where you're not doing anything. And again, that's a disempowering feeling. But if you're actually doing something like this, it is encouraging. It makes you feel like you're actually making a difference. And as you say, you see other people in the community that are doing it. So that starts to take on a life of its own. It becomes its own ecosystem, so to speak. What's fascinating about this problem is it's so big and so pervasive, but you really don't see it until you see it. I made this comment in the TED Talk that litter is blending into the background of our lives. How many bottle caps or cigarette butts do you walk over every single day and you've just become desensitized to it because it's everywhere? And I started asking this question, well, what if it didn't have to blend into the background? What if you could actually bring it to the forefront? What if you could surface it? What if you could use technology to light it up in a way that could actually allow us to quantify it and measure it and then begin to plan certain initiatives so that we could determine, did that have an effect or not? As opposed to, well, it's dirty on that street. Let's just go clean it up again. It's like, you know, hamster on a wheel running around and around and around. Um, you know, we think there's a better way. Well, I think you guys are making a tremendous... People talk about influence, but impact is what's important because impact is what creates the influence. Trying to create the stuff on the periphery doesn't really have the same sort of impact on what you're doing truly is. So I love that. I've never met anybody that's been successful that hasn't gone through adversity in their life. And you talked about some adversity that you faced in business. Can you tell us about another time that you faced something that seemed so overwhelming, an adversity that you thought you would never get through, but once you got to the other side, you were able to look back and say, I'm actually grateful that happened. If I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being fully honest, I feel like I'm facing some level of anxiety or stress every single day. Maybe that's just who I am, but that is where I'm at. And managing that stress and dealing with that anxiety is, is a constant struggle. And a con Well, it's a constant practice, I think is a better way of putting it. There's something that happened recently that I felt a ton of adversity around. And look, nobody was getting shot. So it's all relative. Nobody was you know, facing major health issues. But it was a really big moment for me, for the company, and for the individual. So there was somebody who had given their all to our company for years, had actually picked up and moved to be near me, and had really just sacrificed a tremendous amount. And I had to let this person go not because of anything that they had done, but because of my failure, my failure to get the company to a point where they were the right fit. And this person had become a friend. And I toiled with this decision and realized that it was a decision that had to be made and um, it had to be made immediately. And I spent, I don't know, two days thinking about what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? What's it going to leave for our, you know, what, what are the ashes that are going to come out of our relationship going to look like? And what happened was fantastic. I explained to this individual that this was the decision. It was non-negotiable and it was immediate and that I was sorry. And what I expected was at least some level of pushback or why, why me, why now? But all I got was gratitude. I received a message really of love from this person who said, thank you so much for inviting me to go on this journey with you. I understand this is probably really difficult for you to go through too. And he almost flipped the script sort of 
providing therapy to me when all along I thought I was going to be providing therapy to him. And that was, uh, that was a pretty interesting moment to experience from an adversity perspective. How do you cope with stress and anxiety today? Do you have meditation practice, physicality, what works for you? Yeah, there are three things that I typically sort of three tools in my, my tool bag. Uh, the first is any form of physical movement or activity. And whether that is a yoga class, going for a run, lifting a weight, just movement is really, really helpful to get out of my head and into my body, which for me is what needs to happen. When I'm feeling stress, it's in my head. I got to get out of my head and into my body. So that's the first. The second is I phone a friend because, and wouldn't you know that you're one of those friends? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, having that perspective from someone else is helpful. Having somebody else kind of hear me out and then offer another angle is something that I, I, I've always found to, to, to help me deal with anxiety and stress. And the third is music. There are certain songs that just can flip a switch in me and really alter my mood quickly. You know, I will add a fourth, and, and it is meditation. But for me, that might be... I, don't picture me sitting in a lotus position quietly with candles and incense burning, although sometimes I'll do that. For me, it could just be journaling. It might be just going for a walk, getting still, getting quiet is how I would, uh, is how I would characterize that. But those four things from physical activity to friends to um, music and some form of stillness, that's how I get out of my head and back on the right path. And the nice thing about all of those is we can do them in tandem. We can do them individually. They're sustainable. We can take them with us anywhere, essentially. The beauty of meditation is, like you said, it allows that presence. It lets the muddy water kind of settle. There's a different kind of presence whenever we write. Lots of times when we're journaling, it's about what's on our mind right now, as opposed to the near future or the distant past. So there's all these areas where you can find the the layer or the the texture that you need in that moment. But again, it's about finding what's going to work for you, what's sustainable. And I'm the same way you are. If, if something is rough going on or I'm having a hard time, especially from a mental standpoint, the physicality, especially that's where the adversity does help you because now you're focused on just this moment, just this discomfort. And in that moment, you can have tremendous presence. In that moment, you can have tremendous resolve. In that moment, everything else goes away. And then when you come back to it after you face that hardship, what we walk back to isn't as difficult for some reason. It's almost as if we've given it that space. We've let it kind of bleed off a little bit. And now it's not nearly as daunting. It's absolutely true. And specifically with entrepreneurship and, and trying to build something. And, and for me, entrepreneurship is not you know just about building a business. It might, it, to me, it's about making something in the world that didn't yet exist. It's about having a vision and making that vision a reality. So, but with, specifically with entrepreneurship, um, remembering your why is a really valuable and effective way of sort of reducing that stress, right? Remembering, why the hell did I even get into this in the first place? Has always been helpful, you know? And for me, my why is right behind me every night, you know, at home. They are always right there. And uh, it's a good reminder of, you know, no matter what, at the end of the day, I know why I started this thing. And while I don't know necessarily where it's going, I will always remember what got me to begin in the first place. I love that. And then I also like to put the who with the why. 
the why is powerful and compelling, but you have to know who the hell you are, what the hell you're capable of. And when you face adversity, it strips away all the stuff that you're not. So you really know who you are. And sometimes it's ugly and sometimes it's not pretty. But because you have the courage to do that, that's what's allowing you to really make the difference that you are, my friend. So I just think you hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I don't know who said this, but I love it. Everybody talks about, oh, I'm building a startup. Well, I think the startup builds you. For me, I think maybe the most important lesson of all has been the importance of knowing thyself, right? And really beginning to learn who you are and, um, you know, what gets you going and what sets you back for me has been one of the most invaluable parts of this entire experience uh, of the entrepreneurial journey. I love it. There's a samurai that was turned into a Zen monk and he says, it doesn't matter what you know or what you learn. If you don't know who you are, you know nothing. So I think that this is a great way for you, for us to put a bow on this. Jeff, how can we find out more about you? Can we reach out to you? If somebody hears this, this was powerful or compelling to them. How can they learn more about you? How can they reach out to you? I'm just Jeff at literati.org. I would love to hear from anybody who thinks that, you know, they want to be something that join us on this journey and you can find me on any of the social channels um, on most of them. Fantastic. Thank you so much for our friend. I look forward to talking to you many more times, hopefully in person soon. And uh, I think that this was a tremendous representation of who you are and what you're working towards. So thank you again. Well, thank you, Marcus. The uh, the feeling is mutual and it's an honor to be, uh, to be joining you here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.